Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word and just pray that through the power of your word, the power of your spirit would magnify your glory so that in our lives we would project holiness so that your glory would be seen in the way that we live. And we know that starts deep within our hearts. Our actions are irrelevant because you care about the heart. And so fix our hearts on you. We know that the actions we do are a product of our hearts. So we ask for you to get to the root of things, to the foundation of the way we live so that our hearts would be righted and in the rightness and righteousness and holiness of our hearts that you produce, we would live lives that honor you. Not just for our good, and certainly not as a means to earn salvation, but for your glory and for our joy and for the sake of those who don't know you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Timothy six seventeen. We're going to talk about money. So I have a question. Is it okay to be rich? Let me clarify, specify. Is it okay to be a Christian and be rich? Yes, it is okay. But is it advised? Probably not. I'd compare being a rich Christian to a man evangelizing in a strip club. It's not wrong, and it can have good intentions, but that man is walking into a world of temptation. So it's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to have riches. And so what scripture does is it tells us how to navigate that. Being rich comes with several warnings. And there's a reason that being rich comes with several warnings, or riches in general, whether it's if you're rich or if you're pursuing riches or just the idea of wealth in general, uh, is li- the scriptures are littered with warnings about it because of the pervasive nature of our hearts that wants to turn everything into sin. I should say not our hearts, uh, but our flesh. And I say not our hearts because we were given new hearts in Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26. He replaced our old stone hearts with soft hearts of flesh, amiable hearts upon which the truth of God is written. But our flesh loves sin. And wealth is an incredible tempter for sin. But this text, whether it is, whether or not it's okay to be a Christian and be rich, it's just not the point of the text, but it's an important point to make so that we understand that as we talk about these things, What we're not saying is you cannot be rich or that if you are rich, you need to get rid of your wealth. That's not the point of the text today. The point of the text is how we steward and manage our wealth. That's what matters to God because your heart is what matters most to God. And from your heart, your actions will flow. So what you do with your wealth is a heart issue. And today, Paul offers a warning to our hearts as we navigate wealth and possessions in this life to ensure that we find our ultimate confidence, our ultimate assurance, our ultimate security, and our ultimate joy in God alone who provides all of that for us. So, verse 17, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this is a warning to the wealthy. But this is also about God's good provision 
and our enjoyment of him. And that enjoyment is meant to be in godly things, not in earthly things. Wealth is an earthly thing. But if stewarded right, it can be used for godliness. And if you know God for who he is, as Paul just described in the doxology, then you will enjoy him more and enjoy his blessings and provision more than anything this world has to offer materially or financially. So you can see the relationship between the end of verse 16 or the, all of verse, really verses 15 and 16 and this new, he has this new idea that he introduces about wealth. They're very well connected that Paul would spend this time in verses 15 and 16 explaining and declaring and revealing these absolute realities about who God is, these mind-bending, unfathomable realities about the nature and character of God, and then immediately talk about money. So coming off of that doxology, it changes the way we perceive wealth. And what Paul is essentially getting at is how you perceive God is certainly going to determine how you manage your wealth. And from a proper perspective of God, you would see your wealth as an instrument that was graciously given to you by God as a means to magnify his glory, to magnify his personality, to magnify his nature and his characteristics and his grandeur and his greatness and his supremacy and his sovereignty and his glory. All those things are the point of the Christian life, regardless of what object we're talking about. In this case, we're talking about wealth, money, possessions. First, what we need to do is figure out what Paul means when he says, the rich. This is a distinction from those that Paul addressed earlier in verse 9, which probably felt like a long time ago, because I think it was in like October or November or something. But uh, verse 9 is the, the people that Paul's addressing in verse 9 are different than the people that Paul's addressing here in verse 17. In verse 9, Paul says, but to those who desire, that's a key word, but to those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So you can see the weightiness of that warning. This group of people is different from the group of people that Paul's addressing in verse 17. In verse 9, it's those who desire to be rich. While in verse 17, it is those who are rich. And Paul's warning, his warnings to both are different because they're different groups with different mentalities. Notice that in verse 9, Paul is dealing with their heart because he says he is addressing their desire. They are not rich. They have no wealth, but they seek it. And their desire for wealth will produce actions toward gaining wealth. And Paul says that adventure will get you in trouble and trap you in sin because it is a heart issue. Your desire, you desire what you do not have, so you are discontent. So money itself, though it has the potential to ruin your heart, is not itself the problem. Right? Money itself is not the problem. The heart is always the problem that scripture addresses. Having money is not the issue. The rich people, these rich people that Paul's referring to or talking to or talking about, uh, likely gained their wealth either through an inheritance. They didn't pursue it. They just got it. Or they had a business and their business was successful or some other perfectly proper way to gain wealth. Possession is not the problem here. How the human heart deals with that possession is the problem. It is the desire for it that is the issue in verse nine. And the pursuit of it as a means of comfort and security and blessing on this earth, that's the issue. Whereas in verse 17, Paul is addressing those who are not necessarily seeking wealth because they already have wealth. So their hearts are not as bent on procuring wealth as those in verse 9. Still, though, a warning is needed for the rich because of the potential harm of wealth for the believer. 
But it is clear that there is a different temptation for the wealthy versus those who just desire to be wealthy. Now, mind you take a second and think, which class am I in? Am I the one who desires to be wealthy but is not wealthy? Am I the wealthy or am I neither? I'm not wealthy and I don't desire wealth. And I'd be willing to bet all of you think that's the best one to be. Broke and happy. <laughs> like that's the holiest version of, you know, wealth or lack of wealth. So, and, and I, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I mean, to a certain extent, absolutely, yes. Being without and still being satisfied in Christ is obviously glorious. But what if God gave you wealth? What are you, what are you gonna do? Just not be satisfied in Christ? Of course you have to be satisfied in Christ and that's God's lot for your life. So we need to kind of like take these two verses, verse nine, verse 17, and, and discover what do we learn from the distinction of these, in, in these two verses, the difference between the desire for wealth and the possession of wealth. We learn the point that Jesus makes all throughout his Sermon on the Mount which is that God is far more concerned about your heart than he is about your actions and possessions. Your actions and possessions are a product of your heart. God cares about your heart. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount over and over and over again, Jesus is constantly dealing with these people who are used to a law. And the law says, do this and do that. These are good actions. These are bad actions. And so Jews got very familiar with doing the right actions. If I just obey the law and do what the law tells me to do, I'm good with God. And Jesus is like, that's not the problem. And so he makes some pretty extreme statements. He says, you know what? A murderer, a murderer is bad. But you know who's just as bad as a murderer? Someone who hates his brother. And then the Jews are probably like, what are you talking about? That's not true at all. We have constant conflict with our brothers. I hate many brothers. I'm, not, I'm no murderer. And Jesus is like, that's the point. It's a heart issue. The same heart that hates your brother is the same heart that murders people. Your actions, though they're relevant and meaningful and they're important, they are not the issue. They are a product of the heart. And the heart is what Jesus is constantly after. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus completely flips the script on, on Jews, on the law, on scripture, on obedience to God. And says this is not a matter of functionality. It is a matter of your intentions, your motivations, your mind, and your heart. In both verses 9 and 17, Paul does not condemn wealth. He never says that Christians should not be wealthy. Nowhere in scripture does it explicitly say that believers in general cannot be wealthy. Or that if they are wealthy, they should give it all away because you can't be wealthy. So if you get wealth, you got to go back to being poor. Or maybe not poor, but just, you know... Kind of poor, like middle class, which today feels poor, if you ask me. But (laughs) there are examples of believers giving away all their wealth in Scripture. We see this in like Acts 4 and 5 when the early church gave gave away much, you know, all their possessions to people in need. But that's not commanded to us to follow. That's that, that text in Acts 4 and 5 are not commands for us. It's, instead, it's a historical record of what they did, right? Now, giving is a command for believers. But the, wealth, the wealthy giving away all their riches so that they are not rich anymore is not commanded. But if they did give away all their wealth, that also could be righteous. Do you kind of see that there's some freedom and flexibility here? When scripture's not explicit, and 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 kind of deals with this, we call it the gray area. There's black and whites in scripture, right? Do not murder black and white, right? Do not commit adultery, black and white. Do not get drunk, black and white. Hey, but what about, can I be wealthy? And if so, how much do I have to give? And how much do I have to keep? And scripture doesn't explicitly command clarity on some of those nuances. And we call those the gray area. And Paul deals with the gray area and he says, you must operate by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the principles and commands and teachings of the rest of scripture. That sounds like, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's easy to do. It's not easy to do. Not easy at all. 
Because every day and every moment, there's circumstances and situations where that gray area becomes murky and difficult to understand and and not sure what to do. And this is one of the great instances where prayer is massively important in your life. Where being in the word and knowing what the word says so that you can instantly apply biblical truth to any gray area situation because you're in constant prayer and communion with God. You know the heart of God. You know the mind of God. You read the mind of God. You listen to the heart of God as he speaks to you through his word, as he comforts you in prayer as you speak to him in prayer and you are in communion with God you are filled with the spirit and in those moments you know exactly what to do with your money that makes it sound easy too but that's even hard we look instead instead of the historical account of like acts we look to the epistles and we look to Jesus and his commands to find instruction. And all the instructions never tell us that, e- that wealth is evil. It does tell us, Paul just told us, back in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. So the warning is clear. Wealth itself is not evil, but in it and a desire for it, comes an entire world of temptation that will lead you into several kinds of evils. So though wealth is not restricted to the believer, it is only covered by endless warnings in Scripture. So these commands and instructions that we find in the epistles and in Jesus' commands, they tell us to avoid the desire for wealth as a product of being discontent with God's sovereign will for your life. And scripture does not tell us that we should not procure wealth. It doesn't say, don't get wealthy. Instead, it warns us about getting wealthy. And if you can't heed those warnings, then the wisdom is clear. Then don't get wealthy. Nor does scripture tell us to procure wealth. It doesn't, we're never commanded to get wealthy. And Listen, there are, and I'm not going to dive into this idea because it is its own entire series of sermons, but this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is preached all over America right now makes me want to puke. It is terrible. It is disgusting. It is heresy. It is a false gospel. It should be destroyed. It should be preached against. And the preachers who preach it should be judged. For their evil. And it is this idea that because Jesus died for our sins, we should have all the worldly and earthly possessions that we can, and we should have all the health and wealth and prosperity in every way that we can. We can. And they often reference Isaiah 53 that says, he, uh, By his wounds we were healed. So then they claim, well, we, 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 we should always be healthy then because he died for our wounds, so we're healed. We're physically healed. Clearly not a physical thing. Clearly an Old Testament messianic prophecy about how Jesus' death and the stripes on his back that came from the whippings and the lashings and the death he died for us is a spiritual healing. Clearly Any normal scholar will tell you that. But these heretics love to manipulate the Bible and say you ought to be wealthy, you ought to be healthy, and you ought to prosper in everything you do. Because And their their mentality is if you do that, we represent God really well to the world. And I think, well, who's the best example of representing God to the world? Jesus, who was the most humbled man in the history of the world. He had no wealth. Very few possessions walked everywhere and died a miserably sufferable, terrible, painful death and declared that he is nothing. This is the God of the universe who says of himself, I count equality with God, nothing to be grasped. That's the best example of godliness. And you're going to tell me that we should be the exact opposite of Jesus and be physically healthy at all times, prosper, prosper in all things, and be wealthy in every way. I said I wasn't going to get into it. Now I'm getting into it, so I'm just going to stop there. Okay? So. It makes me really angry. I hate false gospels. They make me sick. They make me like want to cry. I'm just like so angry. It's not like happy tears. Angry tears. I just want to... 
Oh, I see it all over social media too. I got to step. Okay, moving on. All right. <laughs> okay. So, though scripture does not tell us that wealth is evil, okay? It does not tell us that wealth itself is inherently evil. God's wealthy. He's not evil. It does constantly warn us of the evils that come with wealth. So, it may not say wealth is evil, but man, it looks like it. Because you see so many warnings, it's like, man, all I'm getting from the Bible is it's probably not a good idea to be wealthy. But you know what? God blesses some Christians with wealth. And because of those blessings, God has done unbelievable things for his kingdom too. But not every Christian gets to be wealthy. And it's not our job to pursue wealth because we go back to verse 9 and the warning for desiring wealth is way graver of a warning than verse 17 to those who are wealthy because the temptation to desire wealth is much much harder to navigate much much harder to navigate and shows a discontentment in the heart so if you're not wealthy, you're thinking, hey, Pastor Mark said it's okay to be wealthy. I'm going to go get wealth. I desire wealth. I'm going to go procure as much wealth as possible. He said it wasn't evil. Well, now you're desiring wealth. And now you've got to go back to verse 9. And now you've got to read those warnings and go, well, hold on a second. Why do I desire wealth? What's going on in my heart? So I do believe, despite all that, that with all the warnings about being rich, pursuing wealth is very, very dangerous, which is why Paul addresses the heart of pursuing wealth in verse nine. And again, it warns us plenty about desiring wealth and pursuing wealth and having wealth because God knows the dangers of letting our sinful flesh possess worldly and earthly money and money makes for power. Money is power. With money, you can have authority over things. You can buy your way through things. With money, you can own possessions and produce for yourself comforts. I mean, just think about it. How many times when you fly, are you flying economy scrunched in between two people with no armrests and you're sweating for three hours and you finally get off the flight and you're like, I hate flying, right? Like, that's not comfortable. Man, if I was a billionaire, I'd buy my own jet and f- live in luxury. I don't want to, you know, like, I'm not saying I actually would. I'm just like, <laughs> like that's the mentality. What, what money does is it makes us purchase comforts. Now again, is comfort itself sinful? No. God himself says, I want you to be comfortable in me. Comfort's okay. It's what makes you comfortable that's the problem. Money's okay. It's how you get it or your heart for it or your desire for it or the way you possess it or the way you manage it. That's the issue. And that all comes back to your heart. So who are the rich? The rich in the first century are not like the rich today. So we must put this in historical context to better understand who Paul would call rich today. So if Paul were standing here and he looked at us, would he call us rich or would he not call us rich? A common man in the first century would have food, clothes, and housing. Those essentials would not make someone rich in the first century. The rich in the first century, the people that Paul's referring to when he says the rich, were those who had enough money to have more than just the essentials of food, clothing, and shelter. Meaning, most of the American middle class today would be considered rich to Paul. Because most of you can buy several modes of transportation, a couple of vehicles, some toys, maybe a snowmobile, a four-wheeler, you know, a riding lawnmower and a push mower and a, a snowblower and maybe some several shovels and, you know, a three-story house with three-car garage. And, you know, we, we can buy more than, a, than, than is essential. And now listen, if you're hearing in that, that I'm saying it's bad to have those things, then you're not listening. I am not saying that it's bad to have things. Okay, if you've got a boat on a lake next to your lake house, I'm not calling that inherently evil, okay? It's not. If you have lots of toys, that is not inherently evil or sinful. It does reveal that we are rich. 
Because most of us, like I said, can buy cars, toys, entertainment, all kinds of entertainment. Go to movies, buy movies. You probably have Netflix, Hulu, and a couple other services, you know, plus your TV, how many TVs you have. You can travel. You have all kinds of luxuries that are not essential or necessary. Now, if they're feeling like I'm picking on you, you're feeling condemned, that's a you problem, not me. So I'm not saying that, all right? <laughs> that's between you and God. And I might call that conviction. So, um, but what I am saying is that's not sinful, okay? Those possessions aren't sinful, but they might be. And they oftentimes are for a lot of us. And Paul, but Paul isn't condemning us for having that kind of wealth, okay? And I know that in our current economic state, you do not think of yourself as rich or wealthy. I get that. Because we compare ourselves to the people around us. We compare ourselves to what we see on television or the newspapers or the news or whatever, um, or social media or the people, you know, or family, people who have more than us. We see wealth around us. Or we see people have more wealth than us, and we think, well, I'm certainly not wealthy. If that person has way more than I do, and they're not even considered wealthy, well, maybe not to American standards, they might not be wealthy. But in our current economic state, I think that you might not think of yourself as rich or wealthy. But compared to the rest of the world... The average American's wealth, that's you and me, is in the top 85% of worldwide wealth, meaning the average American who complains about gas prices and food costs and inflation is living in the top 15% of worldwide wealth. While the majority of the world lives without most of what we have, including things like running water, clean cities, and police protection, and many other blessings that we tend to take for granted. We ourselves are not only individually wealthy, but the communities we live in are wealthy. The cities we live in are wealthy. And there is wealth everywhere. And because there's wealth everywhere, we compare our individual wealth to the world around us and we go, I'm not wealthy. And Paul would look at you and say, you have more than what is necessary. You are definitely wealthy. From Paul's first century perspective, he would say that you're wealthy. So we may not all be Wealthy compared to other Americans, but compared to the world, everyone in this room is rich. So there are two ways to view this verse. One, we could consider that we are the rich people that Paul is referring to, and we can take his warning for, you know, to heart for ourselves. Say, well, we're, we have everything beyond our need, and so uh, we will take this as a warning considering that we are the rich. Or another way, the second way to look at it is to look at it from a comparative perspective and realize that in our culture, compared to our culture, we're not rich. We're not, we're, we're middle class or lower. And this is a warning for those who are blessed more than the other people in the country. This is, this is a warning for the people that we would call like millionaires, people who make like $250,000 a year. That's the rich. Someone who makes over $100,000 a year, that's the rich. I only make 50, so to make 100, I'd be rich. So it's all about perspective, right? And as much as it's about perspective, it's always, it's not about the numbers. It's not about the amount you have. It's not about comparing yourself to the people around you or to the first century or or to our culture. It's about your heart. Okay, $50,000 might be poor to one person and $50,000 might be excessive wealth to another. The number itself is not the problem. The heart is always the concern. So I, I, do, I don't think it really matters which perspective we take, whether we think of ourselves as the rich or we think, well, I'm not rich compared to those around me, so this isn't about me. Or, no, this is about me because compared to the world, I'm rich. I don't think it matters. Which perspective we take because the root issue is still the heart. So the heart issues that arise here should be something that all of us are aware of and fighting against and protecting our hearts against the desire for wealth and protecting our hearts in a way where we manage our wealth in a way that honors God. Now Paul says in verse 17 that Timothy is supposed to charge them not to be haughty. Now haughty means arrogant. Or having an inflated view of yourself. The truth that Paul is revealing is the relationship between wealth and pride. And oftentimes in scripture, wealth and pride go hand in hand. With wealth comes an inflated view of yourself. As if you are better for having more. 
And it's very easy to feel that way. Just imagine if you were a billionaire, if you won the lottery today. And I was at the, the gas station the other day. I saw the sign on the front that said that the, I forget which lottery it was, but it was up to $400 million. And I was like, oh, I should buy a ticket. <laughs> And then I realized that I heard a stat the other, like a couple days ago, and it was like, you have a higher probability of getting murdered at the gas station you buy your lottery ticket at than you do and while you're buying it than you do of winning the lottery itself. And I was like, I'm just not going to buy it then. So um, that's a lot of money. I thought to myself, I literally just sat there. I... I sat in my car. I knew what I was preaching this week. <laughs> I sat in my car. I, I pulled into Quick Trip. The sign was right in front of my car on the window, and it's staring at me like, buy a ticket. And I didn't, okay. But I'm staring at that number, and I'm looking at $400 million, and I'm going, what would I do with that? And then I looked at, like, the state one, and it's like 1.1 million. I was like, that's nothing. All right. <laughs> I'm not playing that lottery. Uh, what am I going to do with that? Burn it? So, like, <laughs> so I'm thinking about what I would do with $400 million, and I'm like, okay, God, if I won $400 million, I would totally, well, the government's going to take two and a half. So I got a one, $150 million probably when it's all said and done, and that's not a joke. Uh, what would I do with that money? I'd give it to poor people. I'd give it to the church. I would maybe buy a really, really cool car. <laughs> You know, and I could feel in that moment like there's no way. There's I, I believe that God is producing godliness in me, and you would hope that your pastor would manage wealth in a godly way. And I'm looking at that and thinking about what I would feel with that money in my hands, and I'm going, that would not be good for me. And I don't even care about money. Money is not an issue in my mind. It's just the way I'm wired. I just it doesn't matter to me. Like, I mean, it matters, and obviously we have to think about it and navigate those things, and we have to take care of ourselves and plan and all that stuff. But, like, I don't worry about money. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I'm just staring at a number on a board, and I'm going, oh, that makes me feel good. And it's just, it's, it's, and I just imagine if you want it and what you would do with that. And I think... That's all you really need to do is think about what would you do with $400 million? What would you actually do with that money? You'd probably do a lot of good with that money. And my wife and I used to talk about this. And I always say like, you know, we'd say, well, we'd, we'd, we'd use it for God's kingdom. I mean, he should give us millions of dollars. We would use it so well. And then we're like, you know, he doesn't need us. To have money to take care of his church. Really what we want is money. <laughs> we just want it. So I think that the propensity to, for money to cause us to sin is so ready. So ready for us. So easy to get caught up in that. And it creates this inflated view of yourself. Because if I had $400 million and I was like, I'm going to buy a private jet or you know a really luxurious car and a brand new big home you know how how long until i own all the most prestigious possessions in the world until i start looking at people with you know like a car that i got now like a kia and i go peasant your fifteen thousand dollar kia i've got a two hundred thousand dollar lamborghini you know, or something like, I mean, you can imagine how quickly that wealth would get to your head and it would create this arrogance and this haughty attitude. And that's exactly what was happening in the first century. And that's exactly why Paul is warning Timothy to tell, charge them not to be haughty. Notice he says charge. He doesn't say, hey, warn them. Hey, suggest that they're not arrogant. He's like, demand that they are not arrogant. Demand it. Hold them to it. Don't let them get haughty or self-inflated with their wealth. Paul also warns them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And I think that Paul is hitting on God's sovereignty here. 
And I also think he's hinting at the wickedness of mankind. Your riches are not certain. Don't set your hopes on riches because riches are uncertain. That's essentially what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying. So your riches are not certain. I, I just received two bills. Uh, what's today? Sunday. Friday. Friday. I got two bills in the mail that I was not expecting. And I felt like I was financially set for the month. I take care of our money. I manage our checkbook. I balance the checkbook constantly. I'm always aware of what we have and what we need and what we're doing and how we spend it and our budget and all that stuff. So I'm thinking about that often managing our family's money and I know when I get paid and I know how much I have and I know how it's going to be used and different paychecks throughout the month get used differently for different bills and things you know you get if you you do the money in your home you know exactly what I'm talking about and I'm thinking about where we're at on Friday and I'm going okay we're good and we got this and that covered we'll be okay we'll get through and then I get these two bills and, oh, it was frustrating would be the most gentle word I could use to describe how I felt and how I reacted. And it was not a reaction of righteousness. I was, it was not only did I not like the numbers on these bills, but they, I also felt that they were unjustly I was unjustly billed. So I'm like, not only do I not, should I not have to pay these, I'm going to let them know about it. And I got very upset. And the reason I got upset is because, and this is an important truth, and this is a totally different subject matter, but anger is always a product of unmet expectations. That's what anger is. Anger is a product of unmet expectations. The reason you get angry is because you expected something and it didn't happen. Or you expected something not to happen and it did happen. You had an expectation, it does not get fulfilled, and that's where anger comes from. Doesn't mean you have to get angry, but that's what's happening when you get angry. I was expecting to pay my regular bills at regular times, the regular way, with the regular amounts, and then I get these two bills and I'm like, I was not expecting that! And anger got the best of me. And I sinned. I also hurt my hand. So, <laughs> I'm serious. It hurts so bad. Someone shook my hand this morning. I was like, oh, I deserve that. So, <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad we can laugh about sin. Anyways, uh, <laughs> what I have is not certain to provide me with what matters in life. Because life can turn on a dime at any moment. Like, God wasn't surprised by those bills. He was watching me the whole time. He's like, look at Mark, thinking he's got it figured out. I just, I just balanced the checkbook that day. I'm like, mm, we're doing great, got everything figured out. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll, we're, I, I finagle everything just to make it work. And I'm like, whew, it feels such like a... Burden off my shoulders and God's just watching me walk like, I've got it figured out. And then God's like, bam, try these on for size. Just like Job, right? When Satan comes to tempt Job and God's like, Job's wonderful. And Satan goes, well, yeah, you bless him like endlessly. Of course he's faithful to you. You've never given him anything hard in life. And then I look back on the the way I reacted to those bills showing up and I'm going, that was a test. And I failed. And God goes, yeah. And the failure is there intentionally to remind you that you will never be enough. But that Jesus is. So yeah, you sinned. You failed. But that is the beauty of my gospel. So God's watching me live my life thinking I've got it all figured out. He's like, oh, Mark has no idea what's going to hit him. And he hits me with these bills and I freak out and God's like, sin. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, God. And he's like, gospel. And I'm like, oh. And he's like, aren't I glorious? And I'm like, yes. And I get to preach this weekend. So I'm super excited to tell people about it. So 
we are just, we're not guaranteed. God knows everything. Obviously, we don't know everything. We're not guaranteed. We don't know things. Things are uncertain to us. That's why Paul calls riches uncertainty. Wealth is only as valuable as the economy and culture dictates it to be. And that can change quickly. And suddenly your wealth isn't as wealthy as it was. And I think all of us feel that these days, that our dollar used to go a lot further than it does today. And suddenly, your salary just isn't as beneficial as it used to be because money is uncertain. And money is uncertain because mankind is uncertain and, and evil exists and evil people do evil things that impact the value of our wealth and finances and living situations. It's all flexible. It's all uncertain. Life is uncertain. So the things you possess may change in value. So don't put your hope in that which can be adjusted without your approval or power. Like right now, the dollar is the worldwide standard for foreign trade. And for years, it's been like 85% of all commodities worldwide are traded in dollar. The American dollar is the standard. In the last couple of years, that has dropped 8%, which is a large amount. And now people are questioning whether the value of the dollar will continue to be the standard for worldwide trade. And there's a lot of countries who are deciding, who used to trade more, much more in American dollars and are now trading in other currencies from other nations. And America is going, whoa, what is, wait, well, hold on a second. I thought we, we controlled the market. And the world's like, yeah, maybe not anymore. So we're okay today, but their financial people are like, we should be worried. I'm not trying to create worry in you. God is always be God. End of story. So it doesn't matter. But, But it just goes to show that if you're thinking, well, I mean, you know, we, for most, most of us have grown up in absolute wonderful peace. You know, I mean, I was born in 82. I was born a year after Ronald Reagan became president and Reaganomics took over and America's been wealthy and peaceful my entire life for the most part. And if there's any non-peace or conflict, it's overseas. It doesn't bother me. I mean, that's how Americans have essentially lived in the last 40 years. That peace and comfort messes with you. And now that our world is facing adversity, as Americans and as Christians, how are you going to respond? Because American Christians have had nothing but the most extravagant comforts you could ever imagine in the history of the world. Do you realize that? You are the most comforted, protected, and financially blessed generation and people group in the history of the world. That's not a stat. That's a guess. (laughs) But I lived it. I've been living it for 41 years. I know it. It is wonderful. And now the world doesn't seem as comforting, as peaceful as it used to be. And we're all going, whoa, wait a minute. Am I, am I, am I, why, why doesn't money do what it used to do? Why doesn't my money work the way it used to work? Why am I feeling discomfort? Why am I not as wealthy or as well off as I used to be? I used to not be rich. Now I feel poor. And now I'm hearing about wars and rumors of wars. And not only that, but um, there's earthquakes everywhere all the time. And these incredible storms, like California's getting blasted with this endless ream of storms. That's unusual. That's wildly unusual. There's just... And then COVID, worldwide pandemic, and it's just the world's getting weird and out of hand. It's like, yeah, like the Bible said it would. So this is what we should expect. Now, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying, guys, the end times is here. The reality is, as the end times draw near, things will continue to get crazier and worse. And not only that, but this isn't as unprecedented as you may believe. The difference is today, you see and hear everything the moment it happens. That's the biggest difference. If you're thinking like the sin uh, in America is really rampant and gross and weird, it's like, have you heard about Rome? Those people were wildly wicked in a lot of ways, way worse than we are. So nothing new under the sun. This isn't unheard of, but it feels different now. 
And it's like, this is such a good message for our time today, because we are looking at a time in American history where all of a sudden, all of the securities and the foundations that make us what we would have always said is a such a great nation, not so great anymore. And we're still super blessed to be living in America. No question about it. But there is a plethora of uncertainties that are just flooding our world and our life and our culture today. And there are moral issues, there's sin issues, financial issues, security issues, and we're feeling it. For the first time in my lifetime, so I'm just speaking the last 41 years, for the first time in my lifetime, people are really starting to feel the insecurity and the uncertainty of life as Americans. How are you going to respond? Because God has not changed and he is not uncertain. And that's exactly why Paul says in verse 17, instead of setting your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, he says in verse 17, set our hopes on God. Why? Because God is certain. Not only is God himself certain and immutable. Immutable means unable to change. Immutable doesn't just mean he doesn't change. It means he's incapable of change. God can't change because he's perfect. There's no necessity for change. There's no necessity for growing or learning or gaining. He can gain nothing. All he does is magnify that which he is. So God doesn't gain glory, for example, when we glorify him. We're magnifying his holiness that he already possesses. So that's what we mean when we say glorifying God. But God doesn't change. He's immutable. He is certain. His rewards are eternal. And our eternal riches in his glorious provision, unlike worldly wealth, cannot be moved, changed, or decreased by inflation. The point here is obvious. Only God can be trusted. Which is funny because that's what our dollar says on it. His promise of what he offers his followers is far better than any wealth or riches we could ever possess on this earth. And I think what Paul's really getting at is if God makes a promise of certainty about eternal riches and rewards and wealth and prosperity and health in eternal life, where you have a perfect body with a perfect soul, all perfected by the perfections of Jesus, you did not earn them, you have received them freely as a gift from God by his grace because he's so gracious and so loving and so good, though you deserve to die and suffer for your sinful nature. God has redeemed it, restored it, replaced it, and made you new and perfect. And though you don't experience all those perfections in this body, it is still guaranteed, sealed, and promised for you in eternity, where wealth, health, and prosperity truly will be godly things. That's what you put your hope in. Not the things in this earth. And what Paul's getting at is the things on this earth are going to start giving you a sense of security and, and wealth and prosperity and health. I mean, think about it. If you're poor and you get cancer, what are you going to do? You're in trouble. If you're a billionaire and you get cancer, what are you going to do? Hire the best doctors in the world. I mean, I won't go there. But what we do with our money today oftentimes is what we should be doing with our internal inheritance. And we, instead of focusing on the eternal wealth, health, prosperity, riches, and glory of God that we are promised for eternity, we put all of our health and wealth and prosperity and attention and devotion and, 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 and our perspective and all of our confidence and all of our trust and all of our security and all of our comfort and all those things in this thing we have called money, in our wealth, in our possessions in this earth. And that starts stripping away at the confidence we're supposed to have in eternal things. So if you have wealth, which most of us do to a certain extent, do not worry about its stability or certainty. Do not trust in it. Do not depend on it. Do not believe in it. Do not desire it more than God as if it will give you the security because only God can provide security that cannot be interrupted or impacted by outside factors. 
His promise stands and it cannot change. Whereas our promissory notes, which we call dollars, are constantly changing in value. And if our confidence and certainty lies in that dollar, then our assurance and certainty will constantly be fluctuating instead of standing on an immutable God. And Paul not only warns us against arrogance in wealth and setting our hope on wealth, and he not only offers a better way, which is to put our hope on God, but he also tells us why we should hope on God. He says at the end of verse 17, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's a foundational truth that underlies this statement, and that truth is that we are meant for joy. We were created for joy in God. We were made to enjoy God. That is your purpose. That is why you exist. You could say you exist to glorify God. That's true. That's the most superlative, most important reality. But the question is, well, how do I in my life glorify God the most? Well, the way you most glorify God is by being most satisfied in God. Enjoying God is your purpose. Paul just gave us plenty of reason to enjoy God for who he is in the doxology. And the sufficiency of God is enough to fulfill our satisfaction in life. Who God is and the sufficiency of who he is is enough for us. But God doesn't just exist as satisfying and expect us to enjoy only the idea of who he is. Rather, what he does with the satisfying nature and reality of who he is, is he manifests his nature and existence and character to us in a variety of ways so that we have tangible experiences of his unfathomably great nature. And one of the ways that God reveals his satisfying nature is through provision. He takes care of you. He tends to your needs. God, by nature, is a provider. It's who he is. We call him Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. If you see this in Genesis twenty-two fourteen, when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, and before he does, he said, the Lord will provide. And the Lord did. It is his nature to take care of us because we are his creation and his possession. And Jesus even says, how, much, how many of you fathers on earth, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. If your son asks for bread, you're going to give him bread. Why? Because you love your son. You're not going to give him a stone and say, chew on this, buddy. And Jesus is pointing out the fact that if earthly, sinful men, fathers on this earth, will give to their son what he needs, how much more will your heavenly father take care of what you need? He loves to provide for you because when he provides for you, it creates in you a dependence on him and that satisfies the Lord because he's satisfied us. How much is that truth even more prominent to those who know God in Christ being aware of his providential nature? This is where the gospel shows up. This is why the gospel is more than just your justification. It, but that it continues The gospel continues to sanctify us. Jesus is God's greatest provision, a sacrifice on God's part that ensures our eternal abode in his presence of perfected joy and pleasure. If God has already proven his provisional nature through Jesus' death and resurrection, then how much more certain can we be that he is able to provide all other things to us in this life? We have no needs, people. We have no wants. We have Christ. And Paul says, with that, I'm content. In fact, Paul kind of defines wealth and contentment. And he says in Philippians, if I have clothes on my back, food and shelter, I'm good. If I have the essentials to function, and believe me, Paul would be good with less because he has been good with less and he was good with less. And he says, my whole point is to be content, a content in Christ, which is, a, which is where we get Philippians 4, where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that verse is Paul saying, whether I have or have not, I have Christ and that's enough.
If anyone ever told you the Christian life should be easy, they lied to you. It is hard. And sometimes we have not. And we're reminded that we have Christ. And sometimes we have plenty and we lose sight that we depend solely on Christ. And the Lord can give and the Lord can take away as he pleases. So manage your wealth, which you all have to a certain extent, with care. So God's aim is our joy in him. And our joy in him most magnifies his glory in us. Therefore, as a means for God to be glorified, he thus satisfies us. And among the multitude of ways that God satisfies us, one of those ways is to provide us with everything to enjoy, which is exactly what Paul just said. God gives us everything to enjoy. God's aim is not that he would give us something that he would just give us anything, whatever that thing might be, and that that thing would cause us, uh, that thing would cause our joy, but that he would give us things that we do enjoy and our satisfaction would not be solely in that thing, but in the, the one who gave it, in the provider of that thing. None of us sleep in a box on the street. None of us are hungry. None of us are blessed, or all of us are blessed with homes and vehicles and food and money and other possessions that make our life livable in this culture and comfortable. Now, some of us have less and some of us have more, but all of us have enough. And if you don't, listen to me. If you don't have enough, that's what the church is for. To help each other as a means of God's provision. God doesn't typically drop manna from the sky. He doesn't do that anymore. You know what he does? He sends people your way, his people, to take care of you. If you are without, come to the body of Christ. Tell us your need. And if you're too proud to ask for your needs to be met, then your needs won't be met. And that meeting of your needs have been prevented by your sinful pride. I know it's hard to ask for help, but it's necessary and it's humble, and you know what it does? It shows us Jesus Christ, who is humble. So if you're in need, come to the body of Christ with your need. Do you, I, get, I promise you, I can make this promise because I know all of you. I promise you if you come to us with a need, and I go to the people in this body of Christ, and I say, there is a need And I'm telling you as your pastor that this is a legit need and this person wants our help. I guarantee you I can name 10 people instantly that I'm looking at right now who would at the drop of a dime drop many dimes for you. Okay? So don't be proud. Pride isn't only for the rich. It's also for the poor. It's a hard issue. Money's not the issue. The heart's the issue. We destroy pride. We aren't haughty. We aren't certain of our riches. We are certain of one thing and one thing only. God reigns. Christ has saved us. We have each other. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We cannot trust in anything but you. It's just money. It's just money. And money gets us a lot of things. And sometimes those things get in the way of our devotion to you. So we ask a couple of things, Lord. One, we ask that if it is your will that we have enough or that we have more than enough, that we would use that for your glory in a sacrificial and humble way where we depend not on the money or the possessions that money gets us, but that we would hold it loosely in our hands so that we could hold you tightly and cling to you, our certain and immutable God. We also ask that if we are wealthy, that we would steward it in a way that brings you honor, that we would sacrificially give, that we would tend to the needs of others, that we would use our money in a way that honors you, that we would use it to build things in this life that are part of building your kingdom, that we would use it wisely You'd give us wisdom, that you would push down pride and arrogance, that you would just remove the haughty nature of wealth. 
What a beautiful picture of Jesus it is to be poor. In fact, Jesus literally said, blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a blessing to being without. It makes us depend on you. So, Lord, if we have plenty and we don't depend on you, take it from us. Make us depend on you. If we have plenty and we don't depend on you, make us depend on you before you take it from us. We really just want to trust you, God. We really just want to know you better. We want to love you well. We want to, we want to lean into your gospel. We want to see Christ in our life. We want to be like Christ. We want to depend on Jesus. Don't let money get in the way of us. Help us to steward your money, because it's yours. Help us to steward it well. Help us to give it. Help us to spend it in a way that honors you. Help us to be sacrificial with it. Help us to love you with it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.